Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Good to be in the house of the Lord today and trust that each one of us has come with a desire to praise and honor our Lord today. <clears throat> in reference to one of the announcements that Brother Kenny made about the closing of the church at Ferryton, it's, which I knew that was happening, and that's the church where I grew up, the church where I was baptized at. I thought of that, and then I thought, well, just a year ago, the church at Brownfield closed, the church where I was ordained to be a deacon. And since I wasn't any good at that, two years later, they ordained me to the ministry. And that church is now gone. And so there is changes that takes place in all of our lives every day. You know, the only thing that doesn't change is God. Everything else changes. But because of those two things being upon my mind, let me just issue you one little exhortation this morning. And I want to issue this exhortation by way of a story. And I had read of a young man that grew up in a, a church, and small church, similar to most of our churches. And he grew up there, and when he got out of school, he left and went to the big city like many do, and after 15 years or so, he came back, and he was there a few days in that town, and said, I'm going to drive by the church, and he drove by the church, and the parking lot was grown up, the grass hadn't been mowed and looked like years, one of the windows was broke out, and it's very evident that the church was no longer meeting. And so he was there contemplating and thinking about all the times he had in that church. And an older gentleman that lived next to the church saw him there and came over. And they began to talk, and the young man explained, this is where I grew up in church. And the older man told him, he said, yeah, it was a sad thing when they decided to close the church. And the young man said, who's the they? Who decided to close this church? And the older man looked at him and said, you are. You're the one who quit coming. You're the one who forsook the church. So I would exhort each and every one of you here today for the church that you're a member of, don't forsake it. You know, we vote with our feet. Let's be diligent that the Lord will bless the church that we have. I want to begin this morning in John chapter 8, excuse me, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and I, I want to uh, look at a fundamental belief that we have as Primitive Baptists, but something that we all definitely need to well understand. In John chapter 6, we read in verse 44, and here the Savior is speaking, and he says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. We rejoice in the five doctrines of grace. We talk about those. We, we take great comfort in them. And 
if you talk about those five doctrines of grace, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the preservation of the saints. Those five beautiful doctrines. And this one here is referring to that fourth one, irresistible grace. And the term that our Savior used here in this passage was the term draw. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And I want to spend just a few minutes this morning on looking at that word draw. Now, there's a number of ways that we use that word in our English language today. We talk about drawing a picture, uh, other things that, you know, we can make a withdrawal from our bank account uh, of a very limited amount, unfortunately. And if we look in the scriptures, though, I want us to understand what this word means, and it's used in a couple of different ways. Now, the first way that it's used, I want to go over to Matthew chapter 21. In the Matthew chapter 21, in verse 1, it tells about the first way. In the first way that the term draw is used in the scriptures is to designate a period of time or a place that is drawing near. So if you look here in, in Matthew 21 and 1, it says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem. So here's our word drew. They drew nigh. They got close to the city of Jerusalem. So it meant here that something was close by. They were close to the city of Jerusalem. Now, another way that uh, here in this same chapter, uh, the same exact use of it, we look down in about uh, verse 34 of Matthew 21, and it says, talks about a, a householder which had a vineyard, and he had everything planted, and he built a tower, he lent it out to husband, rented it out. And it said in verse 34, and when the time of the fruit drew near, now, what that means is harvest time was close. We were very close. So, in the scriptures, drew or draw can mean something that is nearby, something that is close. But then we can go to the book of Acts, and we can find another use of this term. We go over to Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, we'll go down to... Uh, let me see here. We'll go to verse. Uh, it's somewhere we'll go to we'll go to one of these verses. Yeah, verse thirty-seven. It says, "And here, Gamaliel is talking to the to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he was trying to settle them down." For all the persecutions they were doing in, in Jerusalem. And he said in verse 37, he says, After this man rose up Judas of Galilee. So what Gamaliel is talking about, a number of people that thought they were great individuals, but they were nothing and they soon withered away. He says, After this man rose up Judas in Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. So here he's talking about a drawing and it's talking about here is a number of people that followed somebody. 
So they, they followed. There's a number of people that followed this man, Judas. And then same, same idea. You can go on down to uh, uh, here in Acts. You can go down in Acts 20. And here in verse 29, here that Paul was talking about and what was going to happen in the future. And Paul said, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now when Paul said those words to the church that he was talking to and the people he was talking to, don't you know that that brought a great amount of distress and sadness within his heart? I mean, here is a people that he had, had labored diligently. He gave all that he had. I mean, he gave up his career, his religion, to follow Jesus Christ. He gave it all to serve Jesus Christ. He took care of the Lord's people. He suffered prison. He was beaten. He was stoned. All these things happened to him because he cared for the Lord's people. And then the Lord showed him, after you depart, some grievous wolves will come in and going to destroy the flock. Now that ought to be scary to all of us, thinking that that could happen. So let's put out some guards at the door to make sure these wolves don't enter in. Does that sound like a good idea? But look. Look at the next verse. Here's where the enemy came from. He says, Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things. And then here's our word. To draw away disciples after them. So Paul said, there's going to be some people in the congregation church that's going to going to pop up and start teaching heresies. They're going to pop up and start preaching all kinds of wrong practices. And they're going to draw people away out of the flock. Now, I hate to tell you this, but I've seen that in church history. I've seen that in churches. Isn't that a sad thing that we have to see these grievous wolves entering in? Oh, and by the way, uh, you know how to identify a wolf? You know, the Lord said in one place that, that grievous, you know, talking about these grievous wolves, you know, that the wolves shall come in in sheep's clothing. So if somebody comes, if a wolf comes into our congregation and this wolf is dressed in, in sheep's clothing, it looks like a good godly Christian. How are we supposed to know that they're wolf? First thing you say, well, go talk to him. See what they believe. That's not what the scripture teaches. Scripture teaches us that you shall know them by their fruits. What does that mean? By what they do and how they live. Are these people drawing other people closer to God? Or are they drawing them away from God? There's a key. It's not what they say. It's what they do. All right, so here's another use of our term draw. I've got a little sidetracked on that particular use of draw. But let's go back to another one. You know, if you can go to the book of Judges, and I'm not going to turn there, but you go to the 20th chapter of the book of Judges. There came a time when all of Israel decided 
that they were going to go to war against the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that's not a good thing because, again, here Benjamin was part of the nation of Israel, and they had a conflict with them, and they said that we're going to go fight against the tribe of Benjamin. And it said in, in Acts, in, uh, excuse me, over in Judges 20, that of the tribe of Benjamin, that there were 26,000 that drew the sword. All right, now, we all know what that means, don't you? It's got 26,000 soldiers that are there able to fight there's men can can uh, can battle there but in a very similar manner you go to Matthew chapter 26 and you look in in verse 51 and here we see somebody else that's going to draw a sword and it says behold one of them which were Jesus and this is actually we know it's Peter And we know that because in the account of this over in John chapter 18, it mentions that it was Peter. But here Peter, it says, that says one of them that were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Now, I have a problem reading that verse. Let me just stop and tell you right now. I have a problem reading that verse. You know why I have a problem reading that verse? Because my mind wanders. Because I made a statement one time at a a church that I had an appointment at that I thought that was cool that Peter, the preacher, had a sword. You know, I thought that was pretty neat. I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice if all preachers today had swords? I thought that would be a pretty cool deal. Well, the next month when I went up to that church to fill that appointment, when I got into the stand, here was a plastic sword. So they took me, at least I know they was listening, they got me a sword. Now, Peter took this sword, but notice how he took it. You notice the words that he drew his sword. The definition of draw that I want that we're going to get to here in just a moment over in John 6 where we begin. This definition of this Greek word draw here means a pulling by a superior force. All right? Does that make sense? It's a pulling by a superior force. Was Peter superior to that sword? He was. When Peter uh, Peter reached down to that scabbard and he grabbed hold of the haft of that sword and he started pulling it out, Did that sword have any strength at all? None. Let's just be a little bit silly. Did that sword have any life in itself? No. So when that sword popped out of Peter's sheath and cut off the ear of that servant, was it the sword's fault? Was the sword's power? That's ridiculous, isn't it? It's all by the might and the power of Peter, the superior force. So Peter drew that sword, and I'll just, as a side note, have you ever wondered why that uh, Peter cut off his ear? You know, isn't that kind of strange, just cutting off his ear? And I've heard, and I I don't argue this point, we don't know, but I, I would agree with the point that the reason he cut off his ear was he missed and he was aiming for his head. 
And, you know, he's a fisherman, not a soldier, so he missed. All right, now back to our text, John chapter 6. So y'all remember now the definition that we're using of draw, this third definition of draw that we're using. Well, what does that tell us about John chapter 6 and verse 44 and the use of that word draw? So here again, our Savior says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. What does draw mean? It's a pulling by a superior force. Does that definition fit the use of that word draw here in this verse? I believe it does. So what it teaches us is that here is God the Father as a superior force pulling somebody. He's pulling one of God's children. And one of God's children, not only is he an inferior force, just like Peter's sword, he has no power and no life. But the Father is the one that is doing the drawing. And I love the fact that, that Jesus Christ used this term so that we'll understand exactly how irresistible grace, or if you want to call it effectual calling works in the scriptures you know these other terms that we use sometimes we refer to it uh, the new birth or being born again or regeneration sometimes we call it irresistible grace now when you hear that word irresistible that means you and I don't have the power to resist it now if we had the power, I'm sure some of us here would resist it. We're that stupid. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you about that, but as depraved sinners, we get pretty stupid, don't we? But God's grace is irresistible. Well, why is it irresistible? Because God has all the power and he does the drawing. If any of us here today have spiritual life, if any of us have ever experienced that new birth and have spiritual understanding, it's because the Father has drawn us when we were spiritually dead and without power. It's not something that we desired. It's not something that we wanted. Not something we can take benefit. Not something the preacher gives us. Not something we beget because of the church we're in. Not something we beget because of the family we're in. It's because God chose in His grace to draw us. It's that simple. We also call it effectual calling. Why do we call it effectual calling? Because it's a calling that has an effect. Why does it have an effect? Because you can't resist it. I feel like I'm going in circles here. Now, what I'm trying to get you to understand is, if we have spiritual life, God's responsible. He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. Now, I want to back up here in John chapter 6 for just a moment because there's some verses here that I believe every primitive Baptist ought to know. If you don't have them memorized, you ought to be very familiar with them. And I want to back up to verse 37 to where I want to start here. 
In verse 37, our Savior said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Why are they going to come to him? Because they're going to be drawn. All right? Now, if you're talking about irresistible grace in this drawing, you cannot get away from the doctrine of election, can you? I mean, it's pretty clear here in verse 37. All that the Father giveth me. Well, who is the Father giving to the Son? Who is it that, that the Son receives from the Father? Well, the ones that the Father wanted to give them to you. It's the elect. God chose certain ones to give to the Son. And all those that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Not might, not possibility. Not if they have a good enough preacher to convince them to come to him. You know, that's one thing I hate about Arminianism, that you have to accept Christ. You know, one thing that I really, really bothers me about that? Because it's based on salesmanship. And if you've got a preacher in your church that's not a very good salesman that can't convince some people in the congregation or in the crowd to accept Christ, you're in trouble. And it's nobody's fault except he's just a poor salesman. Aren't you glad you don't believe that? We have somebody that's a lot better that can call us irresistible. Now, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. They'll be drawn, irresistibly called, effectually called. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me. Now, I hate to say this, but I can't resist. When he said here, and him that cometh to me, i got to ask a question. Why are they coming? Because they're drawn. Okay. Now, he says, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now, this is, this is pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff, but it gets better. Now, verse 38, our Savior said, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. If you just use some of our earthly, logical thinking about that, and you read that verse, he says, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. You might be tempted to make a conclusion that Jesus Christ's will was different than the Father's will. I mean, I could see how somebody could make that false conclusion. But it's not that way. Christ is just confirming that when he came, he was doing the Father's will. And it's also a teaching for us that our desire should be to do the Father's will. That should be our goal in our life. Verse 39, he says, and this is... The Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, those that he elected, those that he gave to Christ, that I should lose nothing. I'm glad he said nothing. You know when he says nothing? You know how many people he's talking about is included in nothing? Zero. I should lose nothing. Every single one of God's children that he has chosen and given to Christ to save, Christ did save. I don't know of any other doctrine upon the face of this earth that is more inclusive 
than this doctrine right here. We're not leaving out anybody. Nobody falls through the cracks. It's everybody God wanted to save. He saved. It also presents to us a successful Savior. You know, if, if you preach a doctrine that Jesus Christ shed blood for everybody, but not everybody's going to be in heaven, uh, he wasn't very successful, was he? Everybody that Jesus Christ shed his blood for is going to be in heaven. All right? Now, now I, kept, I told you all ago this is going to get better, didn't I? Not my preaching, but the text. All right? Now, of all that whom he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Isn't that good? All that the Father chose, Jesus Christ saved, and we're all going to be in heaven forever and ever. It just don't get any better than that, does it? We're all going to be rejoicing in heaven forever and ever. And then the Lord goes back and states it another way. He says, this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son. Why can they see? They've been effectually called. They've been drawn. And believeth on him may have everlasting life. Some people said, well, wait a minute. That said, there are those that, that, uh, that seeth the Son and believeth on him are going to have everlasting life, so you have to believe in order to go to heaven. Know what that verse is teaching, that seeing and believing is an evidence of one of those that God has chosen, given to Christ to say. It's an evidence of those. Can you deny the fact this morning that everyone that believeth in Jesus Christ and believes on him as, as their Savior, and they feel themselves to be sinners in need of a Savior, can you deny that any of those that believe in Jesus Christ are not going to be in heaven? It's all going to be there. It's an evidence. So here Jesus Christ is teaching this great principle of effectual calling. Now you say, well, all right, you've been talking about drawing. You've been talking about... Um, all this, this uh, calling, what are you talking about? Well, let me just give you a, a few uh, examples that, that we need to have. We can go over to uh, the book of Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you. All right, there's our word again. Called and drawn. We're talking about the same thing. If, if God has called us, drawn us, what is that talking about? He's called us out of something. Now, I like the first part of that. I hope you all picked up on the first part of that. I mean, you may think that you're nothing. You may think you're not very important. You may think that you're pretty insignificant in this world today. But if God has drawn you, if you have been called by the Spirit of God, you are part of a chosen generation. You're part of a royal priesthood. You're part of a holy people. Now, that ought to make you feel a little bit better about yourselves today and in the right way. Now, he said here, who hath called you out of something. What has he called us out of? He's called us out of darkness. Out of darkness and into his marvelous 
light. Now, when you read the word darkness in the scripture, what do you think about? Um, I'll tell you what you ought to think about is sin. <laughs> uh, you know, people, and I've, I've said this here a while back, I believe, people of this world that have not been called and have not been drawn, they have this idea that when they do something that they know is wrong, they can hide under the cover of darkness. You know, that's the reason you see a lot of these sinful activities in this world, and I'm not going to mention any of those, but you know what I'm talking about. All these things that are happening, it's against God's will. Those are done under the cover of darkness and at night. Well, used to be. Now people's pretty openly with it. But anyhow, now, darkness is emblematic of sin. You and I have been called out of darkness, and we've been called into his marvelous light. You know what that means? Let me just kind of make it real quick. Now, I've been watching the clock over here ever since I got up here, and it's still at, at 6 o'clock. Okay, so i still got six hours to go, so y'all don't get worried about time. I don't have any clue what time it is, so whenever I get through, I'll quit. But anyhow, by the clock, at 6 o'clock, I'm fine. Now, if we've been called out of darkness and called into the marvelous light, if you really want to sum it up, what that really means is now we know better. You know, darkness can deceive us. And darkness can hide the truth. But now we know. We know better. We know better than to do these things that God has says don't do. We don't have any excuse anymore. We've been given marvelous light. But there's also something else. Over in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Here Paul writing to those churches of Galatians said, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. What have we been called to? Liberty. Before we were called into liberty, we were in bondage. We were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to Satan. We were in bondage to that habit of doing those things, whatever our hearts desire and, and the lust of our eyes and our flesh desired, we would do. We've been called out of that. We're not in bondage to sin anymore. And again, to put it in just common old terms, we understand sin is not our boss anymore. We don't have to do what he says. All right? God's our boss now. Now, so we've been called into these, these um, great and, and wondrous things. We also read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15, and this is actually teaching on marriage, but there's one part of this verse I want to, to mention. The very last part of verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7 says, But God hath called us to peace. We've been called, uh, called and drawn away from turmoil, into a place of peace. I hope this morning that in your heart you're at peace. 
at peace with God. Because you're not having to worry about working your way to heaven anymore. You don't have to worry about that. We're at perfect peace with God. All of our sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to close this morning along this same line, going over to um, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, one of my favorite passages in scriptures. And I always like to start reading this passage with the very last word of verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning last word, chapter of uh, verse 8, God. Now you know why I wanted to start there, didn't you? <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's not only a place we should start, that's where we should end. God, who has saved us and called us. Now this answers another question about our drawing and the calling. Who is responsible for our calling and drawing out of darkness, out of bondage, out of sin, out of turmoil, into peace and light and happiness. After what I've said, I hope you don't believe that you're drawn by the preacher. It's all by God, isn't it? God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. He's the author of it. That means he gets all the praise. Not according to our works. You know, even if you believed in some of these other way other people believed, this calling that God has done is not dependent on our works. So that means that if we go through a religious ritual, we go through a religious ceremony or baptism, we go through a, a religious citing verses in our memory uh, and saying out loud, you know, I confess my sins, you know, I, all that. That's works. That's not why we're drawn. It's by God's holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Why did God choose me? Why did God call me? I have no idea, except it's what he wanted to do. For some reason, he put his love on me, and I trust he did the same for you. And he said, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. When was this choice made? God chose his people before the world began. He chose them then. And in God's mind and in uh, in effect, you and I were saved before we was ever born. It was already in God's plan. In fact, Jesus Christ died for us before we was ever born. You know, God knew all of that. He knew everything about us. Sometimes people get upset and say, well, I did this or that and God can't love me anymore. Listen, God knew that before you was ever born. He knew what you was going to do. You're not going to surprise God. And he still loved you. Isn't that amazing? Still loves me. That's real amazing. So here's our God that chose us, our Savior who died for us. We've been drawn by the Spirit. And then in verse 10, but is now made manifest by the appearing 
of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Light and immortality didn't come through the gospel. The life didn't come through the gospel, but the light of it did. Aren't you thankful that not only did God save us and call us, but he gave us the gospel so that we can rejoice in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross for us. May God bless you.